The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Daniel, chapter 3. It's probably a passage that you know very well. And I noticed there are a fair number of children here with us this morning. Um, as we go through this reading, I want you to look for a big surprise halfway through, okay? So just a little bit of a heads up. There is a big, big surprise halfway through this story. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God 
who will deliver you out of my hands. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we, shall, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the fiery, the burning furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yield up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. And this is God's word. I'd like to begin this morning with a very quick story. Uh, just a few weeks ago, we received an email from uh, a friend who is about 40 years of age. And in the email, uh, our friend writes this, and I quote, I went into the hospital two weeks ago, and I stayed for five days. I'm now being diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. We don't know why. There's no history of it in our family. But one possible explanation is this. I was infected by a virus, but instead of fighting the virus, my body fought against itself 
and stopped producing insulin. So now I have to inject insulin four times per day. What a huge, unexpected shock. I never saw this coming. How do you trust God in your personal life when you feel like you've been thrown into a furnace? How do we trust God when world events all around us and in our own country seem like as Christians and as folks in general we're being thrown into one furnace after another? Well, those questions bring us to Daniel chapter 3, the text of the story before us. So let's dive in. Let's look at the narrative and ask that God will grip our hearts in this narrative. It all happens in the 6th century BC. So imagine if you can, it's very difficult, it's so long ago. But you're in the heart of Babylon, in the Near East. The great empire of Babylon, which is at the top of its strength and power, it's defeated Assyria, but it will be defeated in not too much time by a greater empire, that of Persia. And then Persia will go down to Greece, and then Greece will go down to Rome, and it just keeps on going over history. But the the king at this time is Nebuchadnezzar, and his name is right there in the very first word. And it's kind of an interesting name. It's probably a combination of two names, Nabu and Kodanezer, which uh, roughly would be translated like this, God save the king. That's his name. My name is God save the king. Nabu, the first part, was one of the chief, the two chief gods at the time and all of the different gods, Marduk and Nabu. But Nabu had a real particular place. He was the god who determined your destiny. He was the one who arranges everything that happens to you your future, who you're going to marry, how many children you're going to have, how, whether you're going to be going up or down, he was the guy. And so uh, he was the God of wisdom. He was the God of, of desire and destiny. And it looks like Nebuchadnezzar has been named Nabu, please honor the king. Please give him life. And when the music sounds... It's like a national anthem to this God. Well, sometimes we think about these things and we say, oh my, this was very old, superstitious, antiquated, sort of crude. And um, in reality, what's going on here happens to you and to me. What's going on here is actually part and parcel of our life today in 2022. Because you see, what's going on here is that we take something that's very good and you make it into something that's very bad. What do I mean by that? Well, something that's very good is that you and I have all been made by a glorious God. And we have all been made in His image. And so it's a good thing to give honor to our fellow neighbor. It's a good thing to see God's glory in others. It's a good thing to celebrate his greatness and his goodness. We we even are to give honor where honor is due. But idolatry is when you take something that is quite good, and what you do with it is you pretend that we are the author of glory. 
that we are the authors of our nation and its glory, that our nation is glorious in and of itself, that our tribe is glorious, that our art, that our language, that our culture is somehow glorious and wonderful and almost divine. Many years ago, the uh, American writer Richard Keyes, in a book in 1992, uh, wrote a little chapter called The Idol Factory. The title of the book is No God But God. And here's the quote. Idolatry may not involve explicit denials of God's existence or character. It may well come in the form of an overattachment to something that is, in itself, perfectly good. The crucial warning is this, as soon as our loyalty to anything leads us to disobey God, we are making it an idol. Idols will inevitably involve self-centeredness, self-inflation, and self-deception. But a counterfeit is a lie, not the real thing. An idol presents itself through self-deception often with images suggesting that the idol will fulfill promises for the good life. End of the quote. And here you have three Jewish men who are facing a life and death decision. Their eternal destiny is on the line. And the question that they're really facing is, who is my greatest love? Who is our greatest love. Who are we going to worship? And who deserves our worship? These are very, very sophisticated men. They speak several languages. They've gone to the best schools and they're occupying extremely high positions of responsibility and authority in the Babylonian Empire. Today we would call them Ministers or secretaries, ministers of foreign affairs, secretary of state, that's who they are. And yet, as we come to verse 18, when they're asked, will you worship this image of Nabu that is set up? Will you worship this image of the God who is determining your destiny? They say, no. But if not, verse 18, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. There is no God but God. And so they're saying, regardless of what might happen, we are keeping the eyes of our hearts on you, O God, and you alone. And then at the moment, the very moment, here comes the surprise I was talking about, then at the very moment when they are about to die a horrible death, the king is completely confounded. And in verse 25, here's how the text reads. He answered and said, I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar is a polytheist. And so he sees this fourth man as a messenger of the gods. But probably the writer of this text, which was written at least a century later, is saying that what you think you see is actually much deeper 
and much more important. It's not that we're seeing a son of the gods, but he wants the readers to know that you were seeing the son of God. Very often, before our Lord Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, became a human, before his incarnation, he would reveal himself from time to time to accommodate himself to our humanity, to our lack of understanding, to our weaknesses, to our fears in particular, as the angel of the Lord. For example, before Moses, when there was a burning bush, the angel of the Lord said to Moses, you are standing on holy ground, and God speaks to Moses. Or you can think about how the Apostle Paul understood a rock in the desert that gave forth uh, water for, for God's people. And Jesus says, and that rock was the Messiah. That rock was Christ. The um, very, very wonderful theologian of the 5th century, Augustine, in a massive work called The Trinity, has a lot to say about the angel of the Lord being the Son of God who shows himself before he's incarnated at Christmas. And um, in one little quote here, this is what Augustine says in the Trinity, quote, The Lord declared his will through the ministry of angels, and by these same angels, the Son of God, who would one day be born of Abraham's race in order to be mediator between God and humans, prepared the world for his coming. End of the quote. So where is the Son of God when you're thrown into a furnace? Where is the Son of God when the church is thrown into a furnace? Where is the Son of God when the events of the world and all the nations and the conspirations and all the things that are going on make us feel like it's just one big furnace. Where is he? He's in the furnace. God is in the furnace. And do you see it? There's more glory, more of God's glory in that furnace than you could ever imagine the glory of Nebuchadnezzar who put those men in there. And there's more of God's peace to those three men that they could ever imagine possible. The glory of God, the peace of God in the furnace. So where does that take us this morning? Well, it takes you and me to Jesus. That's where it takes us. This text takes us to Jesus and your and my life in Him. See, when, when the Son of God comes, He's doing much more than what he did here in this furnace in the 6th century B.C. See, he, Jesus comes into our furnace in all his glory and with all his peace. The very beginning of the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke, we read this, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory! Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, peace among those with whom he is well pleased. 
He comes into the furnace of our sin. He comes into the furnace of our death. He comes into the furnace of the idolatry of our heart. And he comes into that furnace and he perishes. He dies in the flames. The fire that we deserve, he takes. And then he comes out of that furnace alive. Alive. And all who trust in Him will receive His glory and His peace forever. The purpose of the book of Daniel is, of course, to say, God rules over the nations, even when you can't see it happening. It may look very different from what we can see. Daniel is saying, God rules over all the nations. And that's what Christmas is all about. God, the Son of God, has become human to reign over all the nations and all the languages and all the cultures and all the ethnic groups forever, over all history. But you're only going to see this when you're on your knees before Him. Because it's on our knees that we receive His good favor towards us. It's on our knees that our eyes behold His good favor towards us. And so how can we encourage each other today to live in the wonderful gift of Jesus' glory and his peace to us right in the middle of the furnace of life. Well, I'll make two brief comments. First, if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, you're attracted by Jesus, you're interested in who he is, but you're not yet convinced, either in mind or in emotion, I'd like to encourage you. I really would. I'd like to encourage you. Perhaps you're thinking, wow, these three guys were men of valor, men of integrity, men of character. And I need to become a woman who's just like that. I need to be a woman who imitates these three guys and become... I, I need much more character in my life. I need to be, have much more integrity. I need to be a, a woman who is marked by a holy life. And I'm going to say to you, don't go there. That's not the point of this story. The point of the story is, look at the fourth man in the furnace. That's the surprise. Look at the fourth man in the furnace. No matter what, Trust Him. Come to Him. Let Him carry you. Because a Christian is not, and I'm going to say it again, is not someone who says, I'm going to make my life better. I'm going to become a better person. I'm going to become more spiritual. I'm going to become a man or a woman of integrity and commitment. 
Now, a Christian is somebody who falls on their knees and says, Oh Lord, I just need to confess my utter inability. I need to cast my life on you and give my heart to you and look to you alone who've gone into that furnace for me and have come out alive. And Jesus' peace is for all who trust in him because his peace is an undeserved gift. In many ways, if you become a Christian, your life will actually become more difficult. Because you will be constantly before this question, who is my greatest love? Who do I love more than anyone else, anything else? And Jesus says, I, and I alone, will give you far more glory and far more peace than you could possibly imagine. And if you're already a believer and you're here today, and you are right now living through the joys and the pains and the struggles of the furnace of life, I want to encourage you as well. At this time of Christmas, please remember that Christians are not spared adversity. We are not. The church is not spared adversity. And sometimes we all find in our, in our lives that the difference between walking with Jesus on the one hand and tripping into idolatry on the other, sometimes the difference between that is about as thin as a razor blade or maybe even as thin as a high-tech chip. You and I face challenges. You may well be facing decisions that are extremely complex, that have troubling ethical implications, serious consequences for many people. The Christian life is demanding, and we do fail. But this Christmas, please remember that your Lord and Savior is with you in the furnace. He really is. And he's not just there a little bit. He's there with all of his glory and all of his peace in abundance. And I, I noticed there are a few number of, of children here today. So I don't know what it's like to be a child today. It's been a long time. But maybe you're at school and it's kind of hard. Our kids are teasing you and you're wondering, ah, oh, this is so hard. I don't like being here. You know what? Jesus is with you and he's caring for you. And he loves you far more than those kids who are teasing you. Or maybe you're a little older, maybe you're in your teen years and you're worried about your looks and you're saying, I wonder, I wonder if that guy or that girl is going to really like me because, boy, I don't like what I see in the mirror. You know what? Jesus loves you. And if you're loved by the King of glory and the King of peace, all the rest is going to fit into place. It's okay. He loves you more than any other person could. But we, we often cannot see how living a humble and a contrite life for Jesus, the way of the furnace, the way of the cross, how does Jesus exercise his glory and his peace over all the nations in this way? True, 
we do give honor to our fellow citizens. That's what a country is. A country is the people. And so we want to give honor to our fellow citizens and hold them up as created in God's image and not denigrate them or their reputation because they show God's glory. But at the same time, we don't worship other people. We don't worship our country. We don't put our trust in our resources or our power because all of that is very fleeting. Like Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, here today, gone tomorrow. It's all very fleeting and temporary in the light of eternity. But we move forward. We do. At the very end of Daniel, God says to Daniel, get up and put one foot forward and move on. We do. But we do it on our knees before our Lord Jesus and with the eyes of our hearts on Jesus alone. I'm going to finish with two quotes. The first one is from a very young and very thoughtful Indonesian theologian by the name of Nathaniel Gray Suntanto. And um, I'd like you to listen to this quote. It's the one that's printed in the bulletin. Quote, God is not tethered to political identities or racial allegiance and remains the Lord who is sovereign over all things. God's plan to redeem the church carries on no matter who is in charge of the nations. Christians have a common and constant calling to witness to this God irrespective of political circumstances. In times of injustice and hardship, Christians should be the first to seize the moment and declare, our Savior too died under the powers of this world. He went in obedience before God regardless of political circumstances. He emptied himself of all power and authority. He came in the flesh in humility, taking the form of a servant so that we might be with him. The powers of this world might rule unjustly, and we might suffer sword, famine, and persecution. But we worship a Savior who suffered more. Who are we to flee troubles when God himself came to meet us in their midst? Because God is truly in our furnace, I'm going to end with a Christian Christmas prayer. Benediction, a Christmas benediction for the glory and the peace of Jesus in your lives. Psalm 67, verses 1 through 3. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth and your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Indeed, let all the peoples praise you. This is the gospel. Amen. Thank you.